0: Amen. Thank you, choir, musicians, reminding us of the truth that our God is a mighty fortress. I need that word. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that, amen. That song has stood the test of time, hasn't it, written in the early 16th century. And yet, I want my kids to know that song. And and yet, at one point, that song was new, too. Let's don't forget that as well, that Martin Luther had a a way of taking pub tunes and writing sacred texts to those tunes and made them so singable. And... uh, at one point, all music was contemporary, I guess, but uh, we're so thankful for both here, the hymns of our faith and singing to the Lord a new song as well. And I love that we're a family of faith. I read somewhere uh, this, just, just this week that only 16% of churches in America, of any denomination, have any number of young adults, have any kind of sizable portion of young adults. And we're so blessed here to have a group of young adults who uh, are an anomaly, who come and get out of bed on Sunday mornings and show up. We're so thankful for uh, Jared and for Lee Ellen and others who work, Brad and and Aubrey, with our young adults and uh, who are passionate about our young adults. And to you young adults that are here, let me just say uh, you guys are awesome and and what God's doing through you is, is an amazing thing. Today we're gonna continue our series for the month. Uh, on looking at how the end of Isaiah gives us a picture of what true flourishing looks like. We all have a vision in our heads of what we believe the good life is, what we believe flourishing looks like, but sometimes we're confused on what true, actual flourishing for both humans and for the world really looks like. What is actually best and right? and good and true for you and for me and for our communities and for our families and for our cities and for our governments and for our economy and for the world. You know, the University of the South, Suwannee, anybody been there? It's about 100 miles southeast of here, beautiful campus up on the the mountaintop there in in southeast Tennessee, getting near Chattanooga. Uh, They have recently discerned Four so called university values, university values that guide all they do inquiry, community, courage, and flourishing. I thought that was interesting. Flourishing. I like those four values. The University of the South has described flourishing in this way We share responsibility for the well being of one another and the domain. The domain is what they call their campus, their, their big campus, the domain. We share responsibility for the well-being of one another and for the domain. So for swani the, the well-being of its people and its campus is how they value flourishing. And they, they say that flourishing is our responsibility, according to the website. I see what they're saying, and yes, of course, we should care for one another, and that brings about flourishing, but that's not the kind of flourishing that Isaiah is showing us here. He's not talking about something so small as one college campus, he's talking about the world. What Isaiah is showing us in the final section of his amazing book is God's final work of bringing about flourishing. What Swanee is talking about is the second great commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Yes, that's what Jesus told us to do. The first great commandment he gave us is to love our God more than anything else and with all that we are and all of our being. And then he told us to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe and obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. If we did those three things perfectly, yes, the world would flourish. It undoubtedly would flourish. Let me ask you this, how's it going? There's a a problem, right? We know that the, the mission that God gave us in order to accomplish his purpose, in order to bring flourishing into the world, is to love God, love our neighbors, and make disciples, but in and of ourselves, we can't do it. Good thing that God didn't leave it up to just us. Isn't that good news? Left to our own devices, left to our own feeble strength, our own limited understanding, we're doomed. But the whole message of Isaiah is this. God saves sinners. The, the very name Isaiah means God saves it's God who does this work. God has a plan. He has a good plan, a perfect plan to fix what's wrong with the world and to bring about flourishing as only he can do. And he's worked out this plan in the past. He's working it out now and he will one day work it out completely. The world was good, was very good. The world is fallen. The world will be redeemed. So the question for us then is not, uh, are are we going to be able to bring flourishing into the world? No, we know that we can't save the world, but God can. And he's going to do it with or without us. So the question then becomes, are we going to partner with him in that work of flourishing? And maybe even more important than that is, on which side of that work are we going to be on? Because that has huge consequences as well. So our outline today, if you grabbed an outline, there's only three points on that outline. We're going to see in this text that true flourishing is God's work. It's what he does. 24-7, God brings about goodness and good things. We're gonna start with part one in our outline, God's future work. I walked in on the salt class today and they were in this beautiful section. I said, oh, I came in at a good time. because This is a beautiful, hopeful section of what God's going to do before we get to some of the gritty stuff in the next section. We're gonna see that God is building a holy city. That's the, the blank there, that God's building a holy city for his people and for him to dwell in together. Look at verses eight and nine. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary." You know, last spring semester, we did a whole series uh, at midweek on Wednesday nights about work and witness, about a theology of work. Most of you spend most of your time not at church, but working in the vocation that God has called you to do. How do we as Christians work in such a way that we we partner with God in bringing about flourishing? One of the things we talked about is that, yes, work is broken, work is messed up now, but, but we did talk about that work is good. One of the things we mentioned a lot was how satisfying it can be to do a good job and feel a, a healthy sense of pride in a job well done. How on our best days at work, we feel productive and we feel like we've helped others and we feel fulfilled. That's because God too works and he made us in his image therefore we work as well. And yes, work is broken and fallen like everything else in our world, but I believe passages like this describe how we're gonna have work in the next life. And When God restores things, we're still going to work. If that bums you out, just, just think about this. The work that we're gonna do, we're gonna enjoy it. He says we're gonna enjoy the fruit of our labor. We're going to not just enjoy it with each other, but we're going to enjoy it with God. And we're going to give him thanks and be grateful as we enjoy the fruit of our labor. For centuries, Israel's enemies had taken, just stolen the the work, the produce of the work that they had done. You know, Egypt and other countries taxed them on grain so they would labor so hard in these fields to, to buy a field, to clear the brush and the weeds, to till the soil, to plant the seeds, to water and fertilize and finally harvest only to hand over their bounty to foreign nations. It won't be that way in the place that God prepares for us. We're gonna celebrate the harvest be the best Thanksgiving ever, with the Lord in his courts giving praise to the one who has established a safe and holy place in order to enjoy our labors together. That's where all this is headed. And God commands us to get the invitation out to the whole world. Look at verse 10 through 12. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. What we've seen is is this idea of a highway already in Isaiah. There's the sun. I told Morgan it was going to come out today. The sun is coming out finally for the first time in like four days. We've seen Isaiah use this picture already of a highway, an accessible way to get to where God is. You know, Tim Keller says that every religion makes exclusive truth claims. Even atheism. If it's right, then all other religions must be wrong somehow. Every religion does this, makes exclusive truth claims. But of all the exclusive truth claims out there, Keller says Christianity is the most inclusive. Galatians 3.28 says, there's now therefore no male or female, Jew or Greek, free or slave, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Christianity is an incredibly inclusive, exclusive truth claim. It's the most inclusive, exclusive truth claim out there. There's a lot of talk about inclusion in our society these days. And if you want to really know about how God feels about inclusion, look at what he commands us to do in verse 10. Prepare the way for the people. Remove the obstacles of stumbling that have prevented people from coming to the Lord in his holy city. It's this special highway, an easily accessible highway that's obvious for all to see that leads to the peace and the prosperity of the promised land. At our church's 80th anniversary celebration back in August, I kind of teased a capital campaign that we're working on right now called Prepare the Way. And what we want to do is remove every barrier from anyone in our community from being able to come and be a part of what God's doing here at Woodmont. You know, this this building's old, it's got some issues, and it's big, and it kind of sprawled how it's put together, and it's not very easy to navigate, is it? It's not very accessible. Bathrooms are hard to get to sometimes. Sometimes. When we have big events, it's it's really sad to, to show senior adults the stairs to get to the bathrooms back there. We have new master plans that help tie things together and prepare the way for those in the future to be a part of what God is doing at Woodmont Baptist Church. I hope that Isaiah 62.10 will be the theme verse for that campaign, prepare the way. Every human being on earth is invited by God and welcomed by God to become a part, a full part of the family of God and to celebrate him together. And we have a duty, an obligation to make it as easy as possible for them. Rich or poor, young or old, everyone. Stay tuned. More details coming soon. When the nations come to the Lord, they they become a part of this family of God, this holy nation of priests for himself. And that new nation gets three new names in verse 12. Names are identity, remember that, in the Old Testament. Verse 12 says they shall be called the holy people. The New Testament church is the Greek word ekklesia, which comes from two Greek words, which means the called out ones. The saints, as we celebrate next Sunday on All Saints Day, the holy ones, the ones who are set apart and consecrated for God's special purposes. That's what holiness is all about. It's not about following the rules or being good in and of yourself. Holiness is about being set apart for God's purposes. It's about being different from the world in order to make a difference in the world. Holiness is about not being conformed to the culture around us, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds. We shall be called the redeemed of the Lord, the ones who've been brought back. We shall be called, sought out, the desired and beloved people of God. And the cool thing about the verb tense here in Hebrew is that it implies that God has already done this. The conditions for these new names have all been met. It's like those of you who've adopted or been adopted, all that legal paperwork that takes years and court appearances has all been settled. And now we are ready to receive these new names. The, the syntax of the Hebrew shows that these new na- names are the result of God's work, not anything that we have done, because God brings flourishing. This glorious work of God is a future hope. It's where all this is headed. It's very real, it's a, a secure destiny for us to hold on to. But what do we do until then? What do we do in the meantime? More importantly, what does God do? That's point number two in your outline. He brings judgment and justice. He brings judgment and justice now, but not yet. He's brought it in part now, and one day he will bring it in full. Look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 63. It's an intense passage, okay? So just buckle up. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimsoned garment from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth." Pretty intense passage, right? This watchman on the walls of Jerusalem, is saying, who's that who's coming from Edom? Who's who's just finished doing work in Edom? Edom was the ancient enemy of Israel. Edom is, is used as a personification of the enemies of Israel because they've been at war basically since their inception. They had been fighting constantly. And he looks and says, Who's this guy who's coming with this swagger? And some of you may say this is a weird passage. It may be that you have the battle hymn of the Republic playing in your heads and images of Confederate leaders misapplying, misappropriating this text. And in some ways, it is a scary scene. God's wrath is a real thing. As much as we'd like to downplay it, we cannot ignore that God's wrath against what? Against sin, against evil, against injustice is a very real thing. But God, his justice and his judgment are not something for us, his people, to fear. It's something that we should long for because God's justice and his judgment just simply means making wrong things right. And if you and I have been redeemed by the Lord and been made right by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, we have nothing to fear in God's justice and his judgment. In fact, we should pray for them to come and make the wrong things right. God hates bad things and he loves good things and he's made us good. Isaiah has already told us that the arm of the Lord is gonna bring justice. The arm of the Lord, we know, is his servant, the hero, the one who comes to rescue us when we can't save ourselves. This passage is about the roaring lion of Judah, armed for battle, like we saw back in chapter 59, destroying his enemies. And the the watchman on the wall sees this mighty warrior, and he's standing tall. It's like watching Derrick Henry, just stiff-armed guys, right? That's like this image of this warrior that he sees. And he says, who is this coming? And the Messiah speaks. Isn't that amazing that God Speaks that the Messiah speaks. He opens his mouth and reveals God's truth. He doesn't leave us hanging. And he says to his people, to Jerusalem, he says, I'm mighty to save. I've done what you couldn't do. I've dealt with Edom, your perpetual enemy that you could never defeat. That means that that he can powerfully do, he is able to do effectively, what we can't do for ourselves. That all the Edoms that you and I face on a daily basis, that he can face those Edoms down in a way that we can't. You know, a lot of people who claim to be Christians have really you know, just tried to add Jesus to their lives. They like Jesus, sure, they, they might like some things in the Bible, they might like some things about church, they may even go to church occasionally, may even give some money, to Jesus occasionally, but when push comes to shove, when there's something they really care about, like politics or like a sports team, that's when they say, Jesus, go get them. (laughs) That's when they try to get Jesus to be on their agenda. That's when they try to, to ask Jesus to do something that they want done. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ as he has given his life For us, we become united to him. His cause becomes our cause, not the other way around. Our lives become his, and that's a good thing, because we receive his imputed righteousness. That's a good Reformation Day word, that the righteousness of God doesn't come through our good works, but by grace, through faith in Jesus, who gives us his righteousness and takes our sin and shame and suffering. That's what Martin Luther called a beautiful exchange. Verse 4 says, The day of vengeance will come. The year of redemption will come. Jesus says, It's time. And on that day, those who are united to Christ will find life everlasting, and those who aren't will be dealt with as a just God only can. As Bill Sherman always used to say, those who are born twice die once, and those who are born once die twice. I've got to think about it, not as, not as quick. You may say, wait, 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 okay, this passage of Jesus as a violent warrior meting out justice, how does that jive with the gentle and lowly Jesus that we read about in the New Testament? The one who says, let the children come to me, the one who is gentle and lowly in heart, Well, the Jesus of the New Testament is the same mighty Messiah that we see in Isaiah. Let's not forget that. Isaiah 9 says he's the prince of peace, right? In Isaiah 53, we see the Messiah as a suffering servant. We see that he's led like a lamb to slaughter, like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How can that be the same Messiah? How can both be true? True. Well, thankfully, God gives us a glimpse of what we ourselves will behold someday. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 2 to 6, we see what appears to be a crisis in heaven's throne room. John, the revelator, writes these words, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's like this elder nudges John and he's crying. He's like, who's going to be able to open the scroll? And the elder says, watch this, the Lion of Judah, the mighty warrior who's conquered all his enemies. He has won. He's able to do it. He's so powerful and mighty. The lion can do it. And John says, whoa, where's the lion? He's probably a little scared like, whoa, where's this lion, this mighty lion? And instead he sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb that had been ritually sacrificed. A lamb that had had his throat cut and its blood shed as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of someone else. That's who our Messiah is, the lion and the lamb. We would do well not to make him into something else, something that we would like him to be. Yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly and humble. He's completely approachable as you are. But he's also a great and mighty warrior dressed for battle and mighty to save. Through his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, he's fighting against the havoc that sin has wreaked in our world. And in our lives, and someday that work will be utter and complete. That leads to our final section. Let's remember God's past work, His unmerited favor that He's always shown us. That's the last blank in your outline. His grace that we didn't deserve. Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 9. I will recount the steadfast love, the Hesed dogged love that's the hebrew word of the lord the praises of the lord according to all that the lord has granted us all and the great goodness to the house of israel that he has granted them according to their goodness according to how awesome they are no according to his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love for he said surely they are my people children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. God grieves with the grieving. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. That's the beauty of what God's done for us in the past. But God's children didn't always receive that as grateful children who then obeyed their good, good father. Instead, we became spoiled brats. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. God's discipline and his judgment on us always, always, always ends with his covenantal faithfulness to us, leading us back to life and love. And that brings up an important question. Isaiah hears all this and he asks a key question that's so important at the end of verse 11. Look at this last question. He says, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? who divided the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Isaiah longs to see God do something great in the life of his people, just as he did in the life of Moses' time. He longs to see God show up and show out and do something amazing. Let me ask you this, are you praying for revival? Are you asking God to do something so great in your life and in the life of Woodmont and the life of Nashville that no one could explain it and that Nathan won't take any credit for it because he can't, because it was so obvious that in my feeble weakness, God did something amazing. We should be praying the same thing. God, we long to see your power come. And we tend to ask maybe cynically, where is God? Where is he in the midst of a pandemic? Where is he when my friend got cancer? It's Cancer Awareness Week. A lot of you are survivors here today. Where is God in the midst of that? And that's the question I want you to ask. Because when you seek him, you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. God continues to be good. He continues to be faithful. He continues to be the only avenue of life and flourishing, and we find it in no one else and nowhere else. I want to encourage you today to turn to him for all that you need to flourish. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that even when we don't see you at work, we know that by faith you are working. God, even though we can't explain it, even though we know not how, we choose to proclaim your goodness and your grace. God, everyone in the world is betting their lives on something. And we commit to you today that we are betting everything on you. That by faith, we have committed ourselves, our church, our resources, everything. God, we lay our bodies down on the altar as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship that's acceptable and pleasing to you, that you would use us, that we would find that in dying to ourselves, we truly live, that the only way to flourish is to give up all worldly ideas of flourishing. God, we need you. Parenting is hard. Leading a church is hard. Our work is hard. God, friendships and relationships are hard. Walking through illness is hard. Having bodies that break down is hard. God, we grieve those who've transitioned into the next life sooner than we had expected or sooner than we would have liked them to. But God, we pray that in your faithfulness, you would restore us and renew us And remind us that you're making us younger every day from the inside out. That though our outward bodies are wasting away, inwardly we're being made new. God, we thank you for making all things new. We've seen your hand at work in our lives and we long to see more, God. We long for revival to break out in our church and in Nashville. We long for a movement of your Holy Spirit that we can't explain that we can't take credit for. We wanna see you move in power. We wanna see lives go from death to life. We wanna see hearts turn to you as you open the gates to your holy city, that the dancers may go in, that those who love you may be drawn to your holiness and may themselves become holy as you are holy. Oh God, we know that through Jesus you are able You are mighty to save. And so we thank you for the salvation that is ours by grace through faith on this Reformation Day and every day going forward for the righteousness that you've given us that we didn't deserve, but that you earned and then gave to us as an act of grace. God, we pray that that great grace, that amazing grace, because of your great love, the amazing love that we just sang, how marvelous, how wonderful it is, I pray that that love would overwhelm the cynicism and the division in our hearts and in the hearts of your church, not just Woodmont, but all Christians, so that we may show the world what your body looks like when we are connected in unity and in love of purpose, unity of mind and heart, as we serve eagerly as your hands and feet in a world that needs it desperately. Lord, we love you. We thank you for bringing flourishing into our world, into our lives. And we trust that even when times are hard, that you are still working behind the scenes. Working good from bad, always making all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. 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 We're going to have time of response now. I want to invite you just to wrestle in your heart. We we talked uh, with one of our senior adult classes today about deconstructing and how a lot of young adults have deconstructed their faith. And I'm going to say that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to deconstruct. To deconstruct and question what you learned as a kid is not a bad thing. But I want to challenge you to reconstruct today. I'm gonna challenge you to build your life back upon the firm foundation of the rock that will not move, the mighty fortress who has the one word that can fell our enemy in a single swoop, to reconstruct your life on a foundation of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is freely given to us by God's good grace. If that's you today, you need to do that. I'm gonna be down front if you wanna pray. I know a lot of parents too who are just, praying for their kids, going through the ringer right now, maybe adult kids or teenagers. If you want to come and just pray at the altar too or pray with me, I'll be here as well. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing our hymn of response before we leave.